Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Victoria Jones, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today's Housing Wire Daily interview features a crossover episode of Housing Wire's Housing News Podcast. In this episode, Housing Wire Editor-in-Chief Sarah Wheeler interviews National Housing Conference President and CEO David Dworkin. During the episode, Dworkin discusses how the NHC thinks about affordable housing and which federal policies could improve Black home ownership. Additionally, Dworkin addresses a recent decision by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to delay the final QM rule and how that might have unintended consequences for some of the consumers the Bureau is attempting to help. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. As a top 10 subservicer with a 98% customer satisfaction rate, TMS does business a different way and it does it well. They deliver next level service with next level technology innovations like Simi, their servicing portal that can help make a lender's job a breeze. So when you're ready to have the service put back into your subservicing, go to subservicing.themoneysource.com. Welcome everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. Our guest today is David Dworkin, the President and CEO of the National Housing Conference, which is the nation's oldest housing coalition. But everyone in our industry is very familiar with David. Uh, you know, prior to joining NHC in 2018, David was a senior policy advisor at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. He also served as a member of President Barack Obama's Detroit interagency team, where his responsibilities included developing and implementing strategies to assist in the city of Detroit's revitalization. Previous to that, he managed the Capital Magnet Fund at the Treasury Department's CDFI Fund, which dispersed $80 million in grants for economic revitalization and community development through investment in and assistance to community development financial institutions and nonprofit housing organizations. Then prior to joining Treasury Department, he was CEO and founder of Affinity Strategies. David also served in a number of leadership positions at Fannie Mae and uh, served in the administration of President George H.W. Bush. Um, including the State Department's Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs. I I feel like we could go on and on. There's actually a whole paragraph after this bio, David. So let me just say, um, you know, we're really excited to have you. There's no one better to talk about the issues we're going to talk about today. And thank you for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, the first question we always ask um, on this podcast is, how did you get into housing? And I think your story is probably even more interesting than most. So, you know, how did you get into housing? Well, as you mentioned, I was a diplomat following a 10-year career in foreign policy uh, that started as a war correspondent. And the uh, counselor uh, Secretary Baker, Bob Zellick, went to Fannie Mae as their general counsel. And after about a year, he said, you know, why don't you come here? I have some things I need you to do. And I warned him, the only thing I really know about mortgages is I just got my first one. (laughs) But uh, he had some ideas and he said, we can teach you about mortgages. And they did. And unexpected, uh, certainly to both of us, I fell in love with housing and have never looked back. 
Wow, that's so interesting. We don't get a, a ton of former diplomats in housing, but I'm sure that um, you know all those skills are are also applicable here. They they are. It's um, it's useful to be able to help people see their common interests. And since I've been involved in housing, I've never had to tell anybody to close the torture chamber under the runway. And so that's been both a relief and <laughs> keeps everything else in perspective. Your, your day just looks better already when you're every doing- day is a good day on that scale. <laughs> Wow. Well, um, you know, one of the things we want to talk about um, is affordable housing. And and the National Housing Conference is the oldest coalition of affordable housing leaders in America. But I I think the term affordable housing can mean different things depending on the context and to different people. So how does the National Housing Conference think about affordable housing? Well, it's evolved over time. When we were founded by uh, Mary Kingsbury Simkovich, who was a social worker in New York City, Our focus was on government investment in building public housing to replace horrific slums in New York and around the country. And, you know, when we talk about slums and substandard housing, we're talking about 10 story walk up tenements with no running water or electricity and an outhouse in the alley. So half of the population of New York in 1931 was living in housing similar to that. And what we found is that there wasn't a great deal of interest, especially in the beginning of the Great Depression, to focus on housing needs. Um, So we partnered with home builders and labor unions and became the unlikely coalition. And our slogan was housing is jobs and jobs is housing. That's been a common thread through our entire 90 years. But more recently, I think you would better describe our focus as housing affordability. All housing is um, affordable to someone, I guess, um, unless you're homeless. But the reality is, is that most people cannot afford the housing they need where they need it. And this is true up and down the income scale. I think there are a lot of upper middle class people in this country who have children who have gotten jobs in thriving communities and can't find a place to live. Uh, I think we all know about the millennials sleeping in their bedroom that they grew up in. And while we see that with people of higher income, the situation is really bleak the further down the income scale you go. And ultimately what we end up with is housing prices are too high, economic pressure um, grows, and we have hundreds of thousands of people who are homeless today, the highest in recent history. And that's just unacceptable. I think it's really interesting that you said that, you know, jobs is housing, housing is jobs, because we know that housing is just one part of a larger picture in someone's life. You know, I uh, I think about the gap between white and black homeownership continues to be a topic of interest, um, not just in our industry, thankfully, but 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 really across the country. Um, What are some of the federal policies we need to move the needle forward on black homeownership? I think there's a wide range of policies that we have to do in concert together if we're going to actually make a difference. What we've seen since the Great Recession is black homeownership plummet to levels basically lower than or as low as the period before the Fair Housing Act was passed, when mortgage discrimination was still legal. During the 90s, the black homeownership rate, along with other homeownership rates, began to climb, and it almost reached 50%. Um, by the early 2000s. 
What happened then um, among the, most of the country is you saw easy credit becoming available and a lot of people buying investment properties. You saw securitization and derivatives increase, a lot of risk being leveraged into the housing markets. The narrative for most people was that, well, people were getting mortgages that were bad to buy homes they couldn't afford. And that was certainly true of many people. But in the case for African-Americans, that's really a false narrative. The experience most African-Americans had at that time was that they were in good mortgages in homes they could afford and got refinanced through cash out refinances that stripped their home of their equity and put them in very unstable mortgages that had to be refinanced every two years. And so as their equity reduced, their ability to weather the Great Recession when it came uh, evaporated. And so many more African-Americans lost their homes and the experience in the community after decades of um, and really a century or more of mortgage discrimination, housing discrimination, many people would say it goes back to our founding, which is true, was just more than they could bear and had withdrawn from the mortgage market because of personal and multi-generational experience, which is very understandable. It's still the most important way to build wealth uh, for people who are middle income. And so we've got to help change that attitude. But part of changing that attitude is also making a fact-based case that we've addressed a lot of these abuses and uh, helping people navigate through that system, both financially, um, emotionally, and, uh, and, and through you know, education and information. Interesting. You know, so I just asked about federal policy, but something that we've seen um, just in the last couple of months is several bills working their way through Congress um, to help first-time homebuyers. Um, you have one that's that's really focused on first-time homebuyers and one that's focused on first-generation first-time homebuyers. I would, you know, love to uh, hear what you have to think of those and if if they're helpful and, and what their chances are of passing. They are very helpful. I think the Down Payment Assistance Act that Chairwoman Waters has drafted is very important. Uh, it needs to be properly funded. If it's not funded well enough and that funding is not sustainable, it's probably not going to have an impact. But the down payment is a big barrier for first-time home buyers. The focus on first-generation home buyers is really important because that helps narrow the focus and people who are not benefiting from multi-generational housing wealth. Um, there are other bills too that are gonna be very important. One of them is the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act, which will create a tax credit to allow for the closing of, of the appraisal gap that we see in communities where housing is actually cost too little rather than too much. People would say, well, why is it a problem if it's too little? And the answer is because the cost of doing the rehab or building a new home doesn't match the appraisal and you end up not being able to finance it or justify the construction costs. And so we need a tax credit to actually close that appraisal gap. That's going to be very important. It has strong bipartisan support. Another area is that exclusionary zoning makes it harder to build housing that's more affordable to most people. These are rules and regulations and impact fees that occur in communities across the country 
that make it harder to build anything but large single family homes on quarter or half acre lots. This is something we've got to deal with. And the beginning of dealing with that is a bill called the Yes in My Backyard Act or the IMBI Act. That's going to require, if you're getting CDBG funds, that you have to file a report on what you're doing about exclusionary zoning. It does not link that assistance or any other assistance to actually making progress, but I think the reporting itself will be important start. And because it's just reporting, it's basically a um, not even quite a carrot um, and no stick. Um, it will begin, I think, an ability to assess the situation and make a stronger case as we move forward. Yeah, that, um, you know, local zoning is just such an interesting uh, impediment because it is daunting when you think about all of the, you know, state level, county level, city level, neighborhood, HOA, you know, all the things, all the uh, the gauntlets that have to be run there. Um, so that's, we're definitely looking at the YIMBY Act. We'll, we'll be paying attention there. Um, you know, you wrote a recent article titled The Right Lessons from the Wrong Crisis, which I found really interesting. And in that article, you mentioned the recent decision by CFPB to delay the final QM rule and how that might have unintended consequences for some of the consumers that the Bureau is presumably trying to help. So can you expand on how delaying that rule might affect affordability? Absolutely. So just to widen the lens a little bit and explain that the QM rule is the qualified mortgage rule. And in the Dodd-Frank Act following the Great Recession, one of the things that policymakers recognized is that there were two fundamental problems with the mortgages that were being made to people who had lost their homes. One is that the people themselves were not adequately qualified for the mortgages they got. This often was demonstrated by people getting these 228 mortgages where you would be um, you would be assessed for your ability to pay the mortgage uh, based on uh, the income you had. Um, but the rate that they used would be the teaser rate. So when the rate reset in two years, you could not afford to make the payments. This gets into the ability to pay, which is one of the elements of the um, Dodd-Frank rule. The other is the qualified mortgage rule, which says that those kind of mortgages, the 228s, negative amortization, other types of mortgages, zero, no interest. Uh, my favorite is the stated asset, stated income loan, which was popularly called liar's loans because all you had to do is say what you were making and that was enough. Well, as a friend of mine who was involved with this at the time said, we were shocked that the people getting liars loans were actually lying. Many times the people who were doing the lying were actually the people filling out the paperwork on their behalf, not the people themselves. And the Dodd-Frank rule, rules made those kinds of things illegal. Unfortunately, some of the elements of the qualified mortgage rule got swept up with basic underwriting principles that are used to decide if somebody is qualified for the mortgage. These include your credit score, the loan to value, your debt to income ratio and other factors. And since the late 90s, 
the way mortgages um, have been scored and um, your ability to repay assessed has been by balancing a range of factors and recognizing that, you know, if your debt to income ratio is a little high, but your down payment is high or your credit score is excellent, it's offset. Um, on the other hand, if you have multiple layers of risk, your chances of not succeeding in the mortgage of defaulting is much higher. That was too complicated for the CFPB to really model. So instead, they just set the debt to income ratio at 43%. That was way too low. And the result is it has blocked out a lot of first time home buyers, first generation home buyers, and particularly people of color. And what we ended up doing was for every person we were protecting from getting a bad mortgage, we were forbidding nine people who were qualified from getting one. And so the reality with debt to income ratio is for some people, 43% is too high and for others, 50% is fine. And it really depends on the compensating factors as we call them. So last year, the CFPB began a process of reassessing this qualified mortgage rule. And while it was under the Trump administration, they did a outstanding job of consulting very broadly with consumer advocates, with civil rights organizations, with lenders, with investors. And all of us worked very hard to find common agreement on what was the best way to address these issues so that the um, rule would not unfairly exclude people from getting loans. And we, arranged, we reached an agreement that the CFPB put into its final rule. Unfortunately, the current administration at CFPB has decided that everything that was done in the previous four years was wrong and all things should be reopened. In the case of the qualified mortgage rule, they have delayed the implementation of the rule and left open the possibility that it would be rewritten. That's created a lot of confusion in the mortgage industry. It's contributed to some people being excluded from getting mortgages, and it's just a really bad allocation of their time and resources. There is plenty of important work for them to do in looking at the decisions that were made over the previous four years. This isn't one of them. And I'm hoping that they rethink this decision and allow the final QM rule to go into effect as soon as possible. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in that. We've definitely heard from um, quite a few people in the industry who were part of the process as you guys were to really come to that consensus who are not excited about the idea of opening it back up when you when you come to a hard-won consensus to, to open it back up just, just feels like you're starting over. Absolutely. And... Um, we are really struggling with both the black home ownership rate, home ownership for all first time home buyers, housing prices are through the roof, and we do not need additional barriers um, to uh, re enter the system. Well, you know, my next question is about. Uh what some people would see as an additional barrier, it depends on, on where you're coming from, but we've, we reported this week on the increased number of homes sold to institutional investors over the last year. 
um, you know, we saw that before, right? We saw that um, as we had a, a bunch of um, REO and, and uh, foreclosures coming out of the system, um, that whole, you know, single family rental. Now you could say uh, there's going to be more homes to rent. So if you're a renter, that could be a good thing. But from a getting people into homes as homeowner standpoint, that could be bad. You know, is that trend of, of uh, institutional investors buying up a lot of homes, is that trend alarming to you? It is alarming. And it's not just institutional investors. They're actually a fairly small, albeit growing part of the uh, for rent single family market. Mom and pops and very small businesses dominate this market. Most people don't realize that half of the residential rental property in the country is scattered sites single family. We think about it as large apartment buildings and, you know, um, small multifamily. But in fact, it's mostly single family. And that number has grown dramatically at the expense of first time home buyers who are not able to buy. Oftentimes, we'll see these homes go up for sale and investors will come in and snatch them up for cash. And if you're trying to get a property with a mortgage, uh, you just cannot compete against somebody who's coming in, paying cash, no mortgage contingency, no appraisal contingency, and um, a, 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 in a very short closing period. So this is something that we've been looking at that's very disconcerting. We want to make sure that home buyers who actually are going to live in their home uh, have a fair advantage in getting uh, a home, in buying one. And we've seen housing prices rising very quickly as a result. This trend started during the Great Recession when we were very concerned about vacancy that was caused by a massive wave of foreclosures. And I was a treasury at the time. And I was certainly one of the people who thought that one of the solutions to our problem was encouraging more investors to buy these properties. The alternative was they would stay vacant, deteriorate, ultimately become blighted and drive down the property values of surrounding neighborhood properties. That was a big problem. What we did not anticipate, I certainly did not anticipate it, was that people would hold these properties for another 10 years. Our theory was that investors would buy the properties, they would rent them on annual renewing leases and sell them into a rising market that would create a stable increase in properties that were owned, owner occupied, as we say. And we found instead that they learned how to do this business well, and they have not sold these properties and have been holding them ever since. And it's not clear when these properties will reenter the home ownership market. This is a big problem. We've got to solve it, or we're not going to solve our home ownership problem. Well, um, what are some of the ways you solve that, right? Because uh, in a you know free market, it's like as you said, they they bought it, they figured out how to how to do it as a great business. It's definitely meeting a need, or they wouldn't have people living there. So, what are some of the solutions in in your mind that could that could at least um, you know even the playing field a little bit? I think there are two things. One is that we're going to have to look at how single family um, rental properties are taxed, and as opposed to owner-occupied properties? Is there a benefit you can give for the sale of an owner-occupied property on your capital gains? And how do we look at 
capital gains treatment for money that's earned on investments that create new affordable home ownership that will be owned by owner occupants. But you're right, it, this is a market driven issue. And ultimately, I think that, and this gets to the overall affordability question, we have not nearly enough supply of housing that's affordable to most Americans. We need to build a lot more and we're gonna have to deal with some of the reasons why we're not building enough. The biggest one of those is supply costs. The cost of lumber is up over 300%. And that just drives the cost of new housing through the roof. And, um, but it's not just lumber, it's also steel and wire and uh, even gypsum that's used uh, for drywall. Interesting. Well, um, you know, when you, when you look at this, what would you consider a win? Like you, you guys are studying affordable housing all the time. You know, this is your, you're trying to move this mark. What, what counts as success for you? What would you be, you know, do you have a certain uh, amount of increasing home ownership among certain communities or how are you guys going to measure success um, that, that we have expanded affordable housing? Absolutely. I think we've got to get the black home ownership rate from the low forties up to 50 and above. I think when we get to that level, we basically um, addressed most of the, pretty much all of the mortgage ready African-American home buyers. And then we've got to take a new look at the market we have then and how do we get to 60% and ultimately close the gap. Um, we, we need to look at um, increased opportunities for first time home buyers uh, among Hispanic and Asian American and uh, other underserved communities. And we ultimately need to increase the overall home ownership rate back to its historic level. Those things will have a big impact on our economy. They create more jobs, they create sustainable growth, and they build wealth and help address the growing wealth gap that we have. I think that home ownership is one of the, if not the most important factor here. It's also important to remember that when you have more homeowners, you have more available rental units. And so where rental prices are highly inflated, you can address some of that. It's a continuum because when um, you have fewer homeowners, you have higher rents. When you have higher rents, you have more homeless people. And if you want to address all of those issues, you have to address them all together. Interesting point. I, I've never thought of it that way. The way that uh, you know, rising rents contributes to homelessness and 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 just the whole continuum that you just described. That's that's interesting. You know what what do you see happening right now? You've you've been in this industry in different different parts. You know, at Treasury, at Fannie, in in the private sector now now with an affordable housing group. What do you see happening right now that makes you hopeful that we are expanding affordable housing or that we will be able to? More people are talking about it. And the kind of demonization of housing is an important part of the economy, which occurred as a result of the Great Recession. It was largely unfair and lasted way too long. Um, we're seeing a lot less of that. There isn't a lot more I'm hopeful for, frankly. I think the fact that people are recognizing these problems and are addressing them as important is a vital first step. But the numbers are not improving. And until they do, I'm, I'm I am optimistic about the future, um, but I'm 
really not able to be optimistic about where we are right now until we actually start doing things to turn it around rather than just talking about them. Although clearly talking about them is the start. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on here and talking about them. It's something that we're definitely reporting on all the time and very interested in. So thank you so much, David. Really appreciate you. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It was my pleasure. Now more than ever, the housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers. That's why each week, the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing HousingWire's news desk. Hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Alcina Lloyd, the Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily as we wrap up this week's news coverage. As always, we like to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Have a great weekend and catch everyone back here again on Monday.